listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen, that was beautiful. Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you're here. Let's get into it. Mark chapter 12. And before we get into the message, I just want to also um, let you know that we're going to take, in a couple weeks, a break out of the Gospel of Mark on July 14th. So next Sunday, we're going to finish up chapter 12, and then, that's July 7th, and then two Sundays from today, July 14th, we're going to take a break. And as I've been mentioning here the last few weeks, we're going to look at the issue of what the Bible says about the Gospel and homosexuality and what, it, what a Christian should think about these issues and what the gospel has to say, n- not just to the issue of homosexuality, but the issue of marriage, and then how the gospel really speaks to all human sin, whether it's homosexuality or heterosexual sin. But we're going to look specifically at that issue on July 14th, especially in light of the Supreme Court of the United States ruling this past week where they struck down the Defense of Marriage Act in California, which paves the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage, not only in California, but eventually, I think, is sort of an inevitability in the rest of our nation. And so July 14th, we're going to look specifically at a Christian response to what the gospel has to say about us as sexual beings and then also about what our Christian response should be to this idea of of same-sex marriage. And then, on one of our Wednesday night teachings, in fact, the last Wednesday night teaching, July 31st, uh, we're going to do a Q&A, because we realize that this is a huge issue, and there will be lots of questions that may come up out of that. And so on July 31st, that Wednesday, uh, that last midweek fellowship in July, um, we'll do a Q&A, uh, that will really answer any of your questions about, about the issues that, that we're going to look at specifically on, on July 14th. All right, with that all, let's look at Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. Now, there was this guy back in the 2nd century, mid-2nd century, about 140, 150 A.D., somewhere around in there. He was an early church bishop, and his name was Marcion. And Marcion who was this preacher, bishop, leader of the early church, was reading the Old Testament and came under this idea that this Old Testament God that he was reading about seemed to him to be incompatible with this New Testament God that we see in Jesus and grace and love. And so he decided to just sort of get rid of the whole Old Testament Testament, and he was condemned as a heretic by the early church. But the Marcion idea of this sort of contradiction between the Old Testament as this law, wrathful, angry God, and this New Testament God of grace and humility, this, by the way, that's an incorrect um, idea, still prevails today. And so let me ask you before we begin today, because I think this, what we're going to read today, really gets at this idea. How do you view the Bible as a whole, the Old Testament, the New Testament? Have you thought about how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, and how the law in the Old Testament relates to grace in the New Testament? 
And Jesus turns the tables on his, his questioners in this text and, and points us towards understanding in that area. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to, to help us, and then we'll read and work through this text. Father, thank you for your kindness to us as, as a people. Lord, I'm still thinking about that song that, that Laura Susan just sung. You are the refuge of our weary souls. To one degree or another, I think every soul in this room is weary. Weary in our fight against sin. Weary in our struggle to live for Christ in a culture that is against you. Weary with our own flesh. And so I pray today, Lord, as we look at this text, that this would be a a gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit that would blow in our sails. For people that are in this room that that are already Christians, would would you encourage us? Would you deepen our love for Jesus? Would you deepen our understanding of the Bible? And would it nudge us towards Christ's likeness evermore. And for my friends in this room who do not yet know Jesus, Lord, by your kindness and by your sovereign grace, would you make that which is dead come alive? Would you cause a dead heart to beat? And would you cause deaf ears to hear? And would you cause blind eyes to see and savor Jesus? So that the person that came into this room lost in sin and self-righteousness, might turn and see Jesus and come to life through the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name, and for the joy, the eternal joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 28, let's read Mark chapter 12. Remember, we've been reading at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12, these confrontations between these various sects of Christian, I mean, of Jewish leaders that are coming to challenge Jesus about his authority to do the works that he has done. And the difference here is it's not a group, but an individual coming to Jesus here in verse 28. And his tone is a little bit more humble. So let's read Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, And with all your strength. The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him 
any more questions. Okay, before we read 35 through 37, let's just notice a couple things here and, and peel back this text because there's some really important things for us to see here. First thing that, that I, I want you to see is that it's an individual that comes to Jesus rather than, than a group. Doesn't it just seem like... But just, I, I just want... Just beware of sort of the group mentality. You know, isn't it kind of um, easier to sort of kind of... Reynolds calls it stinking thinking. You know, every now, every now and again we'll be talking about something and our attitudes will be getting bad together. And he'll say, wait a minute, that's stinking thinking. You know, isn't it just kind of easier to say, ah, well, just criticize stuff and be a pessimist and a, and a cynic, you know, when you're just in a group of people, you know? But this, this scribe comes to Jesus as an individual and it's really the most positive of the interactions that Jesus has with those that are trying to confront him. Who were the scribes? The scribes were this particular group of religious leaders that were concerned with the exposition of Old Testament law. And so they would have been like the, I guess maybe the closest thing that we would have as an equivalent of sort of teachers, preachers of the Old Testament. They were concerned with the interpretation of the Old Testament law. And so hence, this particular scribe's question to Jesus. And it wouldn't have been an unusual question. Oftentimes, Jewish rabbis would be asked to summarize the Old Testament law or teaching with just a a few sentences. And so he asked Jesus, which is the most important commandment of all? And so let's look at Jesus' answer. Jesus, in, in verse 29 and 30 and 31, summarizes the whole Old Testament and the law in really two commandments, or or two statements. And it comes from direct statements in the Old Testament. So Jesus says in in verse 29, he says that the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so Jesus there is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which the Jews would have called the Shema, which was this thing that they would recite, this, this sort of statement, this creedal statement that they would recite daily. And Jesus is, is reciting that, and he's saying that, that the first commandment, the most important thing in the universe, is for God's created people to love him with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their soul, with all of their strength. And then secondly, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 and verse 31 there of Mark 12. He says, and the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And so what does Jesus do here? Jesus summarizes the point and the purpose of the entire Old Testament law. He condenses it down into two statements, love God with everything that you are, and as a result of your love for God, it's not just some sort of standalone, ambiguous, super spiritual thing, but then that will have an impact on your life and it will cause you to love people, your neighbor, as yourself. And so Jesus takes what religious leaders have counted up as 613 commandments in the Old Testament, half of which were, were like positive prohibition, positive statements saying, do this and the other half of which were mostly negative prohibitions saying don't do this, he condenses it all and says it can all be summed up into this. Love God with everything you are, and as a consequence of loving God with everything you are, it should work out to you loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is saying clearly 
that vertical love of God is the root of our horizontal love of people. And so let's get back to Marcion. Remember how Marcion said, the Old Testament seems sort of angry and remote and full of laws. And the New Testament seems full of grace and love. And so let's just do away with the Old Testament and focus on the New Testament. But Jesus says that the Old Testament can be boiled down into these two statements, love God and love your neighbor. So let's look at the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because I think it'd be helpful for you to see kind of what's going on in the Old Testament. So what's going to happen now is this is going to feel a lot like a Sunday school class. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the very beginning of your Bibles and, and look at the table of contents. And by the way, this is, this is a place where table of contents are always welcome. Like if, if we're ever looking at a, verse, or a scripture maybe of a Bible, that, a verse that you don't know, and you need to look at the table of contents, I give you permission to look in the table of contents and find it. And if there's some persnickety snoot sitting next to you that acts like, you know, how can you dare open up your Bible? Look, I struggle sometimes finding Habakkuk, okay? All right, there, I said it. So look at, your, look at the table of contents in, in your beginning of your Bible. All right, I want you to notice something. I want to break down the Old Testament for you to, to give you a, some handles to hold on to when you're thinking about and reading the Old Testament. So there are 30, there's, there's 39 books in the, in the Old Testament. Okay, and so there, there's the first 17 books of the Old Testament are what we commonly call the law and the history. So you see there Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Old Testament, oftentimes called the law of Moses or the Pentateuch, which is just a word that means the first five. And these first five books speak, obviously, of the beginning of all things, God's creation in Genesis, and then God forming a people for himself through Abraham, starting in Genesis chapter 11 and 12. And then the rest of Genesis is this account of God forming his people, the nation of Israel, and then them uh, finding themselves at the end of the book of Genesis in Egypt, because of a famine, and then into the beginning of the book of Exodus, where then they're in Egyptian captivity. And so then Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy form this beginning of God's history with his people, where he forms a, he creates a people, he forms a people through Abraham, a nation amongst all nations, to be this holy nation that he is forming to, to show his glory and his love to all peoples. And then we find this group of people being in captivity in Egypt and then being rescued by this deliverer Moses who comes in Exodus and sets God's people free and then they wander in the desert for decades. And that's the balance of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what those first five books are about. God creating the world and and people and then forming for himself a people, the Jewish nation, And then that nation being rescued from Egyptian captivity and slavery. And then that nation wandering through the desert. And in this desert, God gives them his law. He gives Moses these ten commandments. And then he also gives Moses this elaborate system of laws that speak to a couple things. It speaks to how they uh, should conduct sacrifices to enter God's presence, how they should sacrifice animals, how they should make themselves clean and purify themselves before God in His presence, and also how they should govern themselves as a nation, civil laws to govern the life 
of Israel. So that's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then you see Joshua all the way through Esther. Okay, Joshua through Esther. So if you look at the first five and then the next 12, that's the first 17 books of the Old Testament. And that is, they're all history books, really, from Genesis through Esther is just a historical narrative of God's dealing with his people. The first five of those 17, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, are specifically the books of Moses that recount the early creation and the wandering in the desert and God giving the law. But then Joshua through Esther is then God dealing with his people. So Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, dies and the people are still wandering in the desert not where God intends them to be in the promised land. And we see in Joshua, God raise up this young leader, Joshua, who leads his people across into the promised land. And then the rest of the Old Testament, from Joshua to Esther, is God dealing with his people, trying to form his people into a holy people to live in this land that he has given them to prosper in. But we we see them... Uh, sometimes obeying God and then disobeying God. And we see towards the end of the Old Testament them being taken captivity again. The first time it was by the Egyptians back in the first five books. This time later on it's by the Babylonians and then later by these Persians. And so these first 17 books are just God dealing with these people who are disobedient to him, but him showing his grace towards them. And then we see them in captivity in Babylon and then in Persia. And that's what the Old Testament is primarily about, God's gracious dealing with a rebellious people, but yet God being patient with them and giving them leaders and giving them signs that point them towards this day when he will redeem them. And then the next five books of the Old Testament are Job through the Song of Solomon. And these are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these are, are like God speaking to his people's heart. Amidst this historical narrative of Genesis through Esther, God gives his people wisdom in the Proverbs. He gives them songs to sing in the Psalms. He gives them this experience of this man named Job who deals with trial and tragedy. He gives them this wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes. And he gives them this love song in Solomon to speak to their hearts in the midst of him dealing with his people. And then after the Song of Solomon, you see Isaiah all the way through Malachi. These are the prophets. And we sometimes break these down into the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. We call them major just because they're longer. And then Hosea through Malachi, sometimes we call them the minor prophets, not because their message is minor, but because it's just a smaller book. And so you have the prophets. So so think of it. Let's step back. The first 17 books of the Old Testament is God's historical dealing with his people from creation of the universe and Adam and Eve to them him forming a people, the nation of Israel, so that through this nation, God would bless all the nations of the earth. And then this people being rebellious to him and God showing his grace and love and renewing them and restoring them even as they're continuing to be disobedient to him. And then you see the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, all of those prophets lived and existed within those historical books, most of them kind of during the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. And so those prophets are men that were speaking God's words 
to God's people during those first 17 books of the Old Testament. So you have history, and then you have prophets. And those prophets lived in that history, and they were speaking God's words of, of hope to his people. So when you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Lamentations, you're not just sort of wandering out in the Bible in the middle of nowhere. That is God raising up a man to speak to his people during a specific time in their life during those first 17 books of the Bible. And so the whole Old Testament is pointing towards God giving his people a way of life through this law that points them to him, that points them to life and holiness in him. And so the whole Old Testament is about God setting apart a people for himself to make them holy so that they will be a light to shine to all the other peoples of the earth so that they will see God and want to come and know God and glorify him and trust in him. That's what the whole Old Testament is. And specifically, this law that God gives his people, this, these Ten Commandments and then these corresponding 613 commandments that, that, that fill up the rest of the Old Testament law, are all pointing God's people to live in a certain way so that they will be holy and so that they will walk in joy and so that they will be a display of God's ways to an onlooking, broken, and lost world. And so, here's a question for us. Is the Old Testament law still binding on, on us as New Testament Christians? Well, let me, let me answer that question by giving you a couple, a, couple, uh, a couple points. First is that when we look at the Old Testament law, when we look at all of these 613 commandments, I want you to look at it with, maybe summarize it in three statements. That the law shows us what is right in the Old Testament. It shows God's people, specifically in the Old Testament, what is right, how to live. It shows God's people what is wrong. And then it shows God's people what is needed, right? So it's, it's, it's creating in God's people this sense that they need something outside of themselves to be holy. And so here's, here's a way to break down the Old Testament law. This is what theologians have done for, for ages when they look at the Old Testament. Think of it in sort of three ways, three different classifications of, of the Old Testament law. First, there was the ceremonial law. There was this law that, that God gave Moses to tell his people how they were to conduct sacrifices, how they were to purify themselves before God yearly. So they would, all these laws about sacrificing animals, and it sort of culminated on this one time a year where they would, would have this day of atonement, where they would have this, they would sacrifice this animal to, to, to God to purify themselves. But the problem with that is it, it didn't last forever, right? Because they had to do it each year, right? So they would have this goat, and they would transfer the sins. The priest would put his hands on this goat and transfer the sins of the people to this goat. And then they would lead this goat off into the wilderness. And that's where we get the term scapegoat. And so they would transfer, symbolically, the priest would transfer the sins of the people to this goat and then lead the goat off into the wilderness so that like the sins are going away. And then they would take this spotless lamb and sacrifice it. But they would have to do that yearly because, you know, people kept sinning. 
And they needed more sacrifice. And so there's this one sense of the law where it was this ceremonial, sacrificial law. And then there was these other parts of the law that spoke about how Israel should live as a nation. Like, so if this guy steals your cow, then this is how you should treat him. Or if this guy does this, then this is, how you, you should, this is what you should do. It's kind of like civil law, like don't run a red light. And then there was the moral law of the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments. It says that you shall not worship any idols, that you shall not commit adultery, that you shall not steal. And so are these laws still binding on us as New Testament believers? So should we, there's a law in the Old Testament that says that, that we shouldn't ha- wear clothes that are, you know, woven together with two types of fabric. Guilty, every one of you. I'm looking at polyester and cotton and silk, every one of you, guilty. There's laws that say that we shouldn't eat certain types of meat. I venture to say some of you had bacon for breakfast this morning, and if you didn't have bacon for breakfast this morning, then I venture to say that every man in this building is going to have bacon probably sometime this week. I know I am. Oh, yeah, somebody, somebody's into it. Yeah, yeah. Or shellfish. So are we breaking the law by eating bacon and wearing clothes that are woven together by two types of fabric, not to mention a whole host of other things that were prohibited or commanded in the Old Testament that we are either not doing or doing even now. And the answer to that is that no, and this is, listen to me carefully, the law, the Old Testament law, in the ceremonial and in the civil sense, has been fulfilled for us in Christ. So let, me, so let me read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, meaning this Old Testament law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so what is Paul saying there? He's saying that these Old Testament commandments of how you should purify yourself before God, And these Old Testament commandments to the nation of Israel about how you should live together as a people with civil law. Ultimately, people could not fulfill that law in themselves. Even the best of the Old Testament Israelite failed in fulfilling that law. So the law was never given so that we might be perfect holy people. It was really to bring us to a place of futility so that we would look outside of ourselves to God for our, our hope and our rescue. And Jesus comes, and he lives the perfect law-abiding life that none of us have ever lived, that no Old Testament Jew has ever lived, and he fulfills the requirement of the law for us through his perfect life and death and resurrection and has now defeated the demand of the law that was on every Old Testament Jew and every person. And he fulfills it for us and now has made us alive and has given us himself so that we might now live out 
the law of Christ. So this Old Testament law gives way, is fulfilled in Christ and gives way to this new law in the New Testament that Jesus summarizes in this answer to this scribe. Now love God with everything that's in you and love your neighbor more than yourself. And so do you see, I want you to see this, that the whole Old Testament is God forming for himself a people. And we really see failure again and again and again in those people. But along the way, God is lifting their hearts and their minds through these prophets who come and speak to them in the midst of their rebellion and failure. And he's saying to his people, look up, you are failing. And there's nothing that you can do to save yourselves. But look up because there's this Savior coming. There's this King coming who will finally and fully vanquish sin and death and rebellion for you. So the whole Old Testament is not this strange, wrathful God who seems kind of angry. But it's this holy, jealous God who is trying to create in his people and is in fact creating in his people holiness and pointing them outside of their own ability, outside of themselves, so that their hope will not be in their own morality or righteousness, but in Christ. And these prophets are pointing them to Jesus and his death and his fulfillment and his resurrection. And then the rest of the New Testament is pointing us back to Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to this scribe that the the whole Old Testament is pointing to me and to my life, to my death, to my righteousness, which now for those that have faith in Jesus is given to them and they become right in God's eyes. So friends, do you see that that, this is the gospel? Like don't breeze past the Old Testament. God is holy and he's righteous and he demands that his people obey him. But we can't in and of ourselves, can we? And the beautiful grace of the gospel is is that Jesus comes and where we have disobeyed, he obeys perfectly and absorbs our punishment and then rises in victory, fulfilling the law and all of God's holiness and now commands all people everywhere to fulfill the law, not by doing a bunch of regulations, but by trusting in him and his righteousness. And so Jesus weaves together the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and says it all comes down to this. Love God and love others. And you can only do that through Jesus and his righteousness. And then let's continue in verse 35. Jesus says this and. Now he turns the tables. This is interesting. So they've been asking him questions for the past chapter and a half. And now Jesus, because remember where it said in verse 34, okay, so Jesus says this guy answered him wisely. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So he's answered a bunch of objections. He's just shut people up, right? And then it says there at the second half of verse 34, and after that no one dared ask him any more questions. And now Jesus turns the table turns the tables on his questioners and asks them a question in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, 
How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Okay, so what's going on here? Let me do a little explaining, and then we'll, we'll tidy this up. And, and, and I got three truths that I want us to grab onto. Jesus turns the tables on them by quoting from Psalm 110. So let me read the first couple of verses of Psalm 110. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. It's referred to often. And Jesus is saying this. So this Psalm 110, first couple of verses. Just the first verse, actually. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is King David writing this psalm. And he says that the Lord, meaning God the Father, says to my Lord, and what David is speaking about here is the Messiah, the coming King, the coming Savior of God's people, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what's going on here? There's, there's, a, there's a little thing going on that's really important that Jesus is saying. This is what the whole Old Testament is speaking about me. Okay, so he asked them previously, who is the Christ? And they say, well, well, the Christ is the Messiah, the son of David. That's what the Old Testament says, and that's right. He says, but who does David say the Christ is? And in Psalm 110, verse 1, David is saying that this Messiah that is coming through his line is not just the Messiah, but he's also my Lord. So he's saying the Lord, God, is saying to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And so David in the Old Testament is saying that his descendant, this Messiah that these Jews at the time of Jesus thought would be just this mere human political deliverer, All the way back in the Old Testament, we have this clue to where David is saying that this Messiah that's coming through my line is not just a mere man who's a political rescuer, but he's also my Lord. And so you you even see the Trinity right there in Psalm 110. David is saying, my Lord, God the Father, is saying to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you can't have it both ways, guys. He's saying, who's the Messiah? I'm the Messiah, and I'm not just a descendant of David, but I am the Lord. I'm David's, I'm not just David's son, but I'm David's Lord. And so right there, Jesus is pointing these scribes to this Old Testament reality that the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. He is saying that he is much more than just a descendant of David, that he is the Lord of David. So lots of technical stuff here. I want you to see that the whole Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. And God gives his law in the Old Testament as a temporary means to point his people outside of themselves to God in his rescue. And that rescue comes in the form of Jesus who fulfills God's law and now gives his people life and the ability to carry out the spirit of God's law and live in holiness for him so that we, as the New Testament church, might be a display of God's grace to the nations 
just like in the Old Testament when God formed the nation of Israel. So three truths that I want us to see from these complex Old Testament, New Testament correlations. One, the Bible is one grand story of redemption that all points to and culminates in Jesus. I want you to see that. I want, you when, I want us to be a church that when we read our Old Testament, it's not just some strange, obscure, sort of cranky deity, but we see a God who is, from the beginning of time until the end, writing this grand narrative that everything, every bit of rebellion, every moment of sin, every gracious act of temporary restoration in the Old Testament is all pointing towards this culmination of God's end in all things through Jesus and his perfect life and death and resurrection where Jesus bears the weight of the sin of his people and defeats it and rises again in victory over it. So the Bible is one grand story and read it that way. That's why we shouldn't parachute down. That's why I think devotionals can be very helpful But beware of reading the Bible just with a sort of verse devotional. You know, that today it's in Romans, and the next day it's in Psalms, and the next day it's over here in James, and then we go to Genesis. Those can be helpful things to to read occasionally. But if you only read it like that, you'll look at the Bible as just kind of like a cupboard that you go to sort of, you know, pick out, you know, snacks. You know, like, I've got a cupboard, and it's full of... Ritz crackers, and even though I've asked a particular person in my house not to buy any more Ritz crackers because, I, you know, those sleeves, you can't just eat one. You've got to eat a whole sleeve at a time, right? So I've asked another person that lives in our house to please stop buying Ritz crackers. But, but yeah, so when I go to that cupboard, you know, I just can't not just get a little snack. And don't read the Bible just like it's a little snack pantry. Read the Bible with the whole in view that there's this one great storyline going from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament is pointing us to the cross and the New Testament is pointing us back to the cross and forward to that great day when all things shall be made right. And when we read it that way, it guards us from taking things out of context Because we see, oh, so when I read that in the Old Testament, I know that that is a temporary thing that God is doing for that time to point me to this great eternal reality in Christ. So do you see that? And then, personally, when I see this great grand narrative of the Scriptures, it has this beautiful personal implication in my life that if God is superintending human history from the beginning to the end, then surely he can superintend my little life. Did you see that? I mean, it's just sort of, it's just sort of math. If, if you can bench press 500 pounds, you can lift the little pink weights, the little five-pounders. You can do a curl with that. And so if God can superintend human history 
if he can raise up kings, even pagan kings, to do his will, and if he can abide and bear with his people that over and over and over again disobey them, then he can abide and be gracious to me and you. And if he doesn't, fors- if he doesn't forsake his people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he won't forsake his people now. And so when we read the Bible through the lens of this great, grand story of redemption, it has this beautiful implication in our lives to produce confidence in us that God will never leave us or forsake us. 2 Timothy 1.12, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Psalm 138.8 The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And you know this one, most of you. Philippians 1.6 He who has begun a good work in you, He will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Why? Is that just a verse sort of in a little vacuum there? Oh, here's a little truth I can grab onto. No, we know that's true because we see that that is the grand story of Scripture. God crafting the story of redemption from beginning to end that all culminates in Jesus. That's point number one. Point number two, God loves us through His law which leads us to joy. So in the Old Testament, God is giving his people all of these 613 commandments not to just mess with them, but to produce in them a distinction, a holiness, a a separation from the onlooking world so that their holiness would produce in them a joy that then would produce in an onlooking world a desire to be one of God's people. And although those 613 commandments have given way to this new law of Christ, so we're not, we can eat bacon and we can wear shirts that are polyester and cotton and we can have shrimp and we can do this and that, we still though are bound by this law. This law of Christ that says love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we are to live in this radical law-abiding way. Why does God call us to live that way? Just to mess with us? No, because his law always leads us into joy. Now listen to me on this. This is so key. This has been so key in my life for fighting sin. Like So Luther, the The great Protestant reformer said this. He says that the greatest temptation in his life was that he would doubt whether or not God would truly be gracious to him. And and I think the battle in my heart is, is this, like, I'm wanting to find pleasure. I'm still wanting to find pleasure outside of God. And so I think when we try and fight sin this way, like, well, you know, there's, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with people that do. And we sort of, you know, reduce the Christian life into like a morality play, right? You know? And so we judge in the Christian land of the South, sort of, you know, 
those who go to rated R movies and those who don't, right? And so when we base sort of life in Christ down to this sort of list of things that we do or don't do, what happens is then is I sort of view pleasure as something that is forbidden and living for Christ is something that I have to sort of grit my teeth and, and bear down and do. But that's a lie, friends. Whether it was Old Testament law or whether it's the New Testament spirit of the law of Christ, it leads us into joy. So why does God want me to not be drunk? Because he wants me to miss out on the pleasure of drunkenness? No, because he wants me to walk in joy and a soberness of mind. Why does God want us to reserve all of our sexual life and energy for one spouse? Because he doesn't want you to have fun and fulfill your desires sexually? No, because he knows that when we give ourselves away, our lives spin out of control sexually. And listen to me, young man and young woman, that, that, that broken notion from hell that there's pleasure that there's pleasure to be ha- had outside of God, whether it's sexually or financially or any other way, is a lie. It's a lie. God's way will always lead you into joy. And that is the, man, that is the great battle of our souls. This is what Augustine said early in the 300s. And he had this breakthrough in his life where at once he was free from lust and temptation and he had this experience where he he finally realized that God was for his joy and not against it and he wrote this quote in his famous book confessions he says how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose you drove them from me you who are the true the sovereign joy you drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. So God's law of holiness is for our joy. And I think that is a beautiful weapon to fight sin. So when I see something that tempts me, I don't want to say, oh boy, that would be great but I can't do that because I'm a Christian and a pastor and, ugh. You know? Some of us, if we're kind of strong, we might be able to, to do that for a while successfully. But man, that, that wears down after a while. I, I want to fight sin the way the Bible calls us to. To say no to that broken, counterfeit joy of life outside of Christ so that I can say yes to the greater joy. So I'm not saying to no to something that I'd really like to do, but I've got to tuck in my shirt and comb my hair, which I can't do now because i got my summer cut. I, and I've I got I to gotta just... Uh, I want to live in this reality that Augustine lived in, in that living for Christ, living for God, is actually where true joy is found. And when we, when we grab a hold of that, it has wonderful power to free my heart from sin. Young men, by the way, that's the way you fight pornography right there. Not by saying, God, I'd really like to look at that image, but I know I can't. 
You fight that lust by saying that righteousness in Christ, saying no to that thing and saying yes to Jesus is far more joyful than the broken pleasure of giving into that thing. That's fight sin by going after the greater joy and forsaking the broken joy. Friends, that has had a transformative effect on my life to fight sin and lust. And I commend it to you. Augustine commends it to us. The scriptures commend it to you. Fight sin. God loves us through his law, which leads us to joy. So fight sin by pursuing a greater joy. And thirdly and finally, and Jesus says this in his answer to the scribe, that God is after our hearts not merely our begrudging obedience. God is after our hearts, not merely our begrudging obedience. I've been a Christian now for, since March 16th, 1989, I think was the day that I first heard the gospel and trusted in Christ. And this past week I was home in my hometown of El Centro, California, taking my two oldest boys to visit my parents. And um, going home is always kind of a strange little spiritual trip for me because I remember uh, God's grace to me when I first heard the gospel, but, but I also, you know, drive around town and I remember just certain aspects of my life before Christ that were just full of folly and sin. And so it's always this kind of strange, convicting, but yet time of conviction and gratitude. But I'm still so keenly aware, 24 years into being a Christian, at how easy it is for me to compartmentalize my life. You know? I've got this little area over here. You know, I just, Jennifer and the kids, I just want you to leave me alone because I just want to sit on this couch and veg and watch Pardon the Interruption, which is a little sports show that I like to watch. Nobody bother me during that time, right? And then I've got this little time here where I just want to, you know, I just want to kind of be to myself, and I just kind of want to let my thoughts sort of run rampant, and just, I just kind of want to wall that off. And then I've got this sort of little public part of me that, you know, I kind of put forward, and I'm just amazed still 24 years in, at how prone I am to compartmentalize my life. Can I have this public thing? I got my little me time over here. Can I just kind of grump, cheerful, grump, cheerful, grump, cheerful? <laughs> Depending on what is need me, needed of me at the time. And I read Jesus' words here where he pushes me to break down these little walls that I erect in my heart. And he says, you know, God's not after sort of your begrudging obedience and your law abiding because by the way, you can't abide by my holiness, but Jesus has done that for you. And he breaks down 
all of these little dividing walls in your heart. He smashes them. He fulfills it. And now he pours out grace on you so that you finally and fully can be vulnerable. Like you can let your guard down and you can run to me and you can confess your sin and you can confess your inadequacy and you can run to me. And so when you drive around your hometown and you see that little place where that happened and that thing and you, you can run to Jesus. And when you stand before a group of people and you feel inadequate, you can run to Jesus. And when you're in the middle of an argument with a person that you love or you're raising a teen or you're in some difficult stressful environment in work you can run to Jesus and not to sort of begrudging obedience because he wants our hearts all of our hearts so where are you and where's your heart I'm not asking about your relative righteousness this week I'm asking about our hearts Do you find your heart cold? Do you find it judgmental? Do you find it weak in your fight against sin? I find that true of my heart often, all three of those things. And Jesus is after our hearts. Do you find your heart compartmentalized, weak and wanting. Well, we just sang, the mercy seat is open still. The message of the gospel, when we find our hearts like that, is not square your heart away and come back when you're ready. The message of the gospel is come to Jesus, tattered and broken, and he takes our hearts. And he makes them new and fresh and alive and soft and gives them grace and life and leads them into joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray for a few things. One, I I pray that you would give us just this grace to see that everything in human history is culminating on Jesus and that in Jesus, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Lord, as we sing often here, our hearts are prone to wander. But you demand all of our hearts. And as we hear those words, let that not produce in us fear or self-trust that makes us think we have to now do something. But Lord, I pray that it would produce in us a futility so that finally we would look to you and say that you alone can captivate our hearts. And that you alone can cleanse our hearts and lead us into joy. And that you do this through Jesus's beautiful, perfect, righteous life, that when we look to you, you give us a new heart. So Lord, would you do this for my friends, for me? Lord, would you renew our hearts? Would you create in us a clean heart as we look to Jesus? 
the only one who is truly clean. For my friends that are Christians in this room and their fight against sin and flesh and the enemy, Lord, would you give us ears to understand and eyes to see that you're not leading us away from joy, you're leading us to joy. And Lord, for my friends in this room who've never trusted in Jesus, Lord, would you give them a new heart so that they can see these things and give you their heart. Lord, I pray that you do this for your glory and for our joy, for our abiding eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.